Word choices are a really powerful thing uh, because words engage the imagination, words arrest our attention in a variety of different ways. Uh, And based on your word choice, um, you'll respond in, in, in different ways. For example, let me paint a picture for you using words. There's a car driving down the highway and there's a small child in the back seat and the small child says, I don't feel very good. There's a picture. Let me give you another picture. There's a car driving down the highway. There is a child in the back seat. And the small child in the back seat says, I'm going to puke! I just created two very, very significantly different pictures. And if you were the driver, you'd have two significantly different reactions. Saying, I don't feel so good, is kind of like, well, how are you feeling? What's wrong? Um, Don't worry, honey, we're going to be home in 32 more exits. It's not that much further. But I'm going to puke! Create something else. We're going to come to a passage as we work our way, as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. Paul actually uses some pretty striking word choices. He actually uses some slang because I don't feel so good. Mummy, daddy, I feel nauseous, strikes the ear a lot differently than slang. I'm going to puke! And Paul uses some pretty striking language, and he's doing it intentionally. We're going to unpack it to see why he says it. Um, because he's looking for particular responses uh, in the church. So let's look at this. Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Now, as I unpack this text, I'm going to just quickly kind of summarize it, give you kind of today's sermon in a sentence. It would be this. It's that the grace of God enables us to rest in Christ's perfection, and the grace of God empowers us to enter into Christ's suffering. And this is what, Paul, this, is what this passage is about. And he starts out by talking about this massive obstacle, um, which is depending on our own resources, Uh, which, of course, are totally insufficient. And so Paul comes right out of the gate and he demolishes any sort of idea that human ability is going to somehow lead to righteousness. It's impossible that any of us could do enough good deeds and live a good enough life and 
walking up old ladies across the street to hear not guilty on judgment day. Paul just throws that whole thing away. So he actually starts in verse 2 by warning them that there's some pretty bad, pretty scary teaching on the way. It starts with a warning. He's like, hey, uh, beware of the dogs. So he starts out with some fantastic slang. He doesn't say, hey guys, there's going to be some teachers. They're going to come. They nuance things a little bit differently than I do. Their teaching's a little different. They're going to use different vernacular. No, he calls them dogs. Okay, what's going on here? Uh, why would he do that? What is Paul getting at? What is he saying? He's, uh, he's concerned that the teaching they're about to bring is going to erase salvation. It's going to erase the gospel message because it's a message of essentially salvation by rule-keeping. So is how Paul kind of uh, says this. So why so serious? Well, the idea um, that Christ's substitution is not enough, if you've been at Redeemer any length of time, you know this, that we talk about this all the time. The idea that Christ's substitution requires our continual contribution is not the gospel. So Paul starts right out of the gate uh, by saying the teaching that's on its way is deeply flawed. Super, super flawed. And then he gets, like, really aggressive, and he starts saying, oh, any of you think that um, you've got a reason to boast and brag and reasons why your, um, you know, spiritual disciplines are going to make you right with God? Well, I have more reason to brag about it. And then, God, and, then, and then Paul leads into that few verses of, he's kind of sarcastically tongue-in-cheek boasting about himself. It's like the, it's like the OG rap battle, you know, here in the New Testament, where Paul's like, oh, you think you're so good? Right? Uh, you know, he's like, well, let me tell you um, how I'm so good, you know, and he, and he starts going off on this whole thing, right? You think, you think you're so good? I'm the king of Pharisees, you know, and he goes on this whole, this whole thing. Why is he doing all this? What's with this tone in Paul's voice? And then he gets to verse 6, and he says, according to the law, I was blameless. Blameless? Is it possible for anybody to actually be blameless? Well, in the Greek, blameless means, uh, the tone of it is, I, I, was rit- I, was, I had, pure, I had uh, ritual purity. I, I never missed a beat. I crossed every T, I dotted every I. I was blameless. You could go down the whole checklist, and I kept the checklist. That's what he's saying. When he says I'm blameless, he wasn't saying, I kept the law and therefore was righteous before God through my law keeping. That's the opposite message. He's like, I was totally blameless. Any of you think you're keeping your spiritual disciplines? I'm keeping them more. You think you can open up your Bible and say, how, how well am I doing this week by keeping all my spiritual disciplines? Whatever you think you're doing, I'm doing more. That's what he was saying. And he's in, it's like this antagonizing kind of speech. Where it's like, it's incredibly offensive. If, it's offensive, if you think that you're going to be okay before God on the basis of your rule keeping, this is super offensive. So Paul goes down this road and he's, un- he's unpacking all of this stuff and he's saying all that um, in this way. He gives his list of trophies in verses 4 to 6. He says, here's all the reasons I could uh, boast in my flesh. Now, this section is what we would call, um, what Paul is doing is he's unpacking what we would call a theology of glory. Not, not glory to God, but glory to man. It's like a theology of glory versus what he's getting to, which is the theology of the cross. The theology of glory is emphasis you, right? You will be loved by God, accepted by God on the basis of what you do. That's a theology of glory. Theology of the cross is you are loved by God, accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done. So the theology of glory uh, shines a spotlight on you, and so your whole approach to faith is, uh, is emphasis you, and it's 
kind of extremely attractive because it's like, okay, well, how can I just be a better me? How do you be a better you? And that's kind of the message that's on its way. So Paul uses this massive, massive offensive language to say, listen, that is going to be an absolute uh, dead-end trip. Um, and so he, he wants to contrast this, whereas the, the theology of the cross is the opposite. If you get into a theology of glory, it's a Christless Christianity because you don't need Christ. If, if your whole reason for coming to church is like, Paul, just you know, tell me how to be better this week and tell me how to raise kids that are morally upright. And like, if that's really all that your faith is, you don't need Jesus. And what Paul's getting at is, listen, of course we're going to want to live to the glory of God's grace, but fundamentally at the core of our faith, the message is not you and what you're doing, it's Christ and what he's done. That's why he begins it this way. Um, consider, for example, the concept of purgatory. Purgatory is the idea that You're not quite good enough to go to the good place, but you're really not bad enough to go to the bad place, so you're going to spend some time in the medium place. Lord help us if we get our theology from NBC, but that's a very funny show for those of you who got that reference. Anyways, so the thing is, um, the the whole concept of purgatory is about your goodness and and where it lands on the sliding scale, which is why the Bible doesn't teach about Teach us that there's some medium place of, of purgatory and goodness and where you, know, where you just kind of need some further refining in the afterlife. That's not a biblical concept. Paul, re- Paul rejects that whole idea because, no, the message of Christianity is not about being good enough. The theology of purg- purgatory is precisely about being good enough. The message of Christianity is that we're not good enough. Christ is enough and we're in him. Right? That's our message. And so... Um, because that is true, and because none of us can be saved by personal progress, all of us are saved by Christ's perfection. And so Luther, in the, during the time of the Reformation, said it this way. In the same way that Paul is being really brash about, um, here come the dogs, with this disastrous teaching, stay away from it. In the, during the days of the Reformation, Luther said it this way. The law says, do this, and it is never done. The gospel says, believe this, and it's already done. Well, that's the fundamentally at the core of, of our faith. So in the theology of glory, the main actor is you. But in the theology of the cross, the main actor is Christ. The theology of glory, the subject of every teaching is you. In the theology of the cross, the subject of every sermon is always Christ. And we're the objects, we're the, where the subject is doing something to the object. We are, we are on the receiving end always, and he is doing something in us. So therefore, this is why he uses this, this language. He goes on, and think about it. If your whole life you've been told that your righteousness is because you're a covenant child of God. And, and of course, in the Old Testament context, the men were circumcised. And Paul's like, those who mutilate the flesh. Like, think about how he's talking about this. Like, everybody who read this would have been like, oh, it's just a little uncomfortable. And he's being so strong on it. To be like, we've got to put all of our chips on Jesus. We absolutely do. And that's where we find our, our rest. So it was, it, this text was highly controversial because the Apostle Paul takes everything that everybody trusted in, and he puts no trust in it whatsoever. And he reallocates the church's trust in Christ and Christ alone. He, rat- he rattles everybody's religious cages and, but by basically saying, because they believed, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to make myself lovely, and God loves what's lovely. Paul says, no. God does not look around for what's lovely. Uh, could you guys just turn this mic down a little bit for me? I've got a big mouth. I'm half Italian. You can turn it down. Okay, the, the, God does not look around for uh, what's lovely and then love what's lovely. God only sees hearts that are unlovely and makes the unlovely lovely. 
That's the gospel. That's what Paul's getting at. Years ago, uh, we did, Susan did this camp for years called Camp Dunamis. And she'd bring, uh, we, we, the team, Susan and the team would bring about 100 kids from the city to Camp Dunamis every year. And, and Susan and the team would preach um, the cross to these kids for a week. And, uh, and at Camp Dunamis, we had this part of the camp where you were trying to keep, get, you know, keep, try and get 100 kids to keep all their cabins clean. And so uh, my brother Nelson and my friend Mike played these characters, these two grown adult Boy Scouts called Timmy and Tommy. And uh, my brother Nelson was uh, Tommy, I think, and, and he didn't have any badges. He just had a sash with no badges. Other way around, whatever. And uh, so, so Tim, Timmy had no badges, and Tommy's sash was loaded with badges. And, and each day, Timmy and Tommy would come out, and there was this big dialogue about, you know, you know, Timmy trying to get a badge, just trying so hard to get a badge and could never get a badge. And uh, one day in one of the sketches, uh, he comes out and he's got a little badge on there. And you could just hear this rumbling through all the kids like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you know, Timmy has a badge, Timmy has a badge, Timmy got a badge. And as the sketch unfolds, it turns out that he made his own badge. And so Tommy pulls the badge off, strips the badge off of uh, Timmy's sash, and, and Timmy's like, ah, you know, this whole thing. And it was hilarious. And even, even years after the kids stopped following it, all of the adult counselors were like, when are Tim and Tommy coming back? But the point is this. The grace of God rips off everybody's merit badges and says we cannot earn through our work what Christ has freely given by his grace. That's the beginning of this text. And this is the emotional force. That's why Paul uses these word choices. Those of you who enjoy great story writing, you read a great novel, you watch a great film, you're captivated by the story, later on you're processing the story. There are certain words that are used at certain times to engage the imagination. And that's what Paul is doing here by saying, beware of the dogs, beware of the mutilation, which brings me to the next uh, word choice that he chooses to use, and it's in verse 8. And it's where he says, and our English translations fail us a little bit. He says, I count it all rubbish. Now, that is an accurate translation, so I don't want to mislead you into thinking that the translation is not accurate. It is accurate, but it's weak. And the reason it's weak is because of our context. Because if I say to my son, if I say to Isaiah and Garber, say, uh, Isaiah, my good man, would you mind terribly if, to take out the rubbish? It sounds sophisticated, you know. I mean, if you're from England, it doesn't sound sophisticated. But, I mean, here in southern Ontario, that sounds pretty sophisticated. So when we read this text and we read Paul counts it all as rubbish, we almost read it like with a bit of a flair, I count it all rubbish. That's not the text. That's not the tone in the Greek. What's our, it's not even close. Right? And, and some of your English translations, it doesn't say rubbish. You know, the translators, you know, these, these uh, English guys back in the, uh, whatever it was, when they did the King Jimmy translation in 1600s, they were like, okay, we'll say dung. Ah! They wrote dung. Some of your translations say dung, which is a bit closer. But dung is like trying not to be crude. The Greek word here is skubala. And skubala in the Greek, it's only used once in the entire New Testament. But I read other ancient Greek documents where the word skubala is used. And every single time it's used, it's slang. And every single time it's used, it's supposed to create like a, uh, this uncomfortable feeling of being repulsed by something that is both useless and repulsive. So when Paul says, when Paul says, he doesn't say, I count it all rubbish. He said, no, no, no. It would be, I count it all a smoking pile of steaming crap. It's a smelly, disgusting, revolting pile of oozing shiza. So he's, he's looking for ways to make everybody uncomfortable. Right? He goes a full ride. 
the whole way. Because he's wanting the readers to stop dead in their tracks and say, wait a second, you're calling everything that we had counted like the way to have God look down on us and be like, okay, I accept and love you now. And you're saying, don't put any trust in that. And he's saying, this entire, this entire uh, episode of salvation by rule keeping is an utterly, utter, utterly disgusting pile of useless crap. And that strikes us as, well, why would he do that? It's not just... Um, it's not just shock value that Paul's going for. He's not just, he's not like, hmm, Philippians, you know, this letter seems like it's got a PG rating. How do I bump that up to an R? Oh, I know. I throw a little bit of scubala in there. He's not, it's not just shock value. It's not like a, it's not like a bunch of directors who look at the film and go, you know, we really need to up the ante, drop an F-bomb in. There, yeah, we got the rating. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's actually very passionately appealing um, uh, to a church on the on the basis of this, of this, uh, on the basis of God's grace, he's trying to make a radical contrast. Let me summarize the whole letter up until this point because we've been going through it. Okay, here's why. Here's why he's. Here's why he drops the S bomb, the Scubala bomb. All right. Philippians one. I am so confident that he began a good work and you will complete it. The day of Christ Jesus. This work of Christ, this work of the Spirit, this thing that God is doing in you. Chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the single greatest influential for, force in my life. Therefore, he is the single greatest formative force in my life. If Jesus Christ, who did not count it, his equality with God as something to be grasped, but was willing to lay it all down and humble himself and come in the form of a man and a bondservant, no less, and then go to the cross, humi- die a humiliating death and be raised by the power of God and be seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father and given the name that is above every name so that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Chapter 1, chapter 2, so chapter 3. So in light of all of that... This whole business of salvation by rule-keeping is a steaming pile of scubala. There's just no other way to say it. That's how Paul gets there. That's how Paul shifts the church out of like, wow, the radicality of God's grace is really something uh, to be utterly amazed by. The gospel liberates us not only from the guilt of our sin, but from trusting in the burden of our achievement. Because if you're all about achievement, that's going to lead you to one of two things. Religious swaggering or religious uh, sniveling. We're either religiously swaggering because we think we're somehow better than everybody else because we're all about achievement. Or we're religiously sniveling because we think everybody else is somehow better than us. Both are dead wrong. We're not going to be able to reach across the aisle, love one another, care for one another, be, you know, be, be able to create beautiful, intimate relationships and friendships with one another where we can care for one another's needs and reach out. Live outward-facing lives. We're never going to get outward because both religious swaggering is inward and religious sniveling is inward. They both curve us inward. I'm better than you, so I can't have lunch with you. I'm better than you, so my kids can't hang out with you, your kids, because your badness is going to rub off on our goodness. Religious swaggering or religious sniveling. I'm just going to sneak out and, uh, because everybody's better than me. Both are dead wrong. And so Paul draws the church into the radicality of God's grace so that they can be liberated from trusting in achievement. And this living in freedom of the gospel is the repudiation of our moral resume because the cross is um, the great equalizer. Because in Christ we're all alive or without him we're all dead. Those are the categories. The world divides the world up into good and bad people, but God divides the world up into dead and, dead and alive people. And that transforms the way that we relate. So Paul uses this language. Then when you get to verse 10... This tone shifts from the 
from the radicality of Christ's grace to this thing in verse 10 where he says, and now because I'm bound, bound to Christ, I want to share in his suffering. And then he calls the church to share in his suffering. What does that mean? Because we don't even want to do that. We look at that, we say, share in suffering. Hmm, suffering. I'll pass. Um, I'll have a double helping of grace, a triple helping of blessing, hold the suffering. That's us, okay? Or maybe I'm projecting. That's me. When I read the Bible, I'm like, oh boy, do I really want to suffer? But what does this mean? What is Paul doing? Is he undoing all the good news with bad news? Is this a bait and switch? Ha ha, grace, 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 a little bit of suffering. (laughs) See, it can't all be good. It's got to be bad. Is that what he's doing here? Not even close. Let me unpack this for you. What does it mean to share in Christ's suffering? Why should you and I desire to? And why does the Bible, more importantly than us desiring to, why are we called to? If, we're, if we say grace, then we also got to be like, I'm going to suffer with Christ. But what does that actually mean? Okay, so let's look at this. There's this great line in uh, The Princess Bride, one of the greatest films of all time, by the way. If you disagree, if you disagree with that, you have serious uh, issues, I'll pray for you after the service, because it is. In The Princess Bride, Wesley looks at um, the princess And he says this great line. He says, life is suffering, highness. And anyone who tells you differently is selling something. What a great line. Life is suffering, highness. And anybody who tells you differently is selling something. Okay, let's back out before we explain what Paul says. Because we tend to look at this as like the Bible's calling us to an arbitrarily hard life. Suffering with Christ. That means put a pebble in your shoe. Wear a hair shirt. Go up, get on hard times. Do you have the flu this morning? Good, you're suffering for Jesus. Oh, you're broke? Awesome. That's also close to holiness. Wait a minute. If you're a human being on planet Earth, regardless of your culture, class, creed, regardless of your worldview, regardless of your religion, you will not get through this life unless you have a means of getting through suffering. Because being a human on planet Earth, globally and historically speaking, means we are all on an inevitable crash course with some form of suffering. So first, let's just level that to say that human be- humans, humans suffer in a variety of ways. The Bible is not just calling us to arbitrary suffering. This is a very specific kind of suffering. Okay, so let's get, let, get to what Paul is saying. What does it actually mean then? Because Paul is in prison... And, he's, and he keeps saying, rejoice, rejoice. This passage started with it again. Rejoice. He's on to something. He's got this pervasive sense of hope and joy that seems to be pervasive in all of his suffering. But then he's calling us to specific suffering. So what is this? Well, it doesn't mean just having an arbitrary life. Suffering in the Greek, it means passion. Christ suffered. The passion of the Christ, the suffering of Christ was he was driven by his love for humanity. He suffered at the cross. It, we call that his passion because his passion was for you and I. That by his great grace that he would save us. He was driven by his passion. And he would not be satisfied until his passion was realized. That his, that his grace would be poured out for us. Driven by this passion, this love. His, it was his passion, his pasheo in the Greek, that led, led to the cross. The, the physical side of suffering. It wasn't just arbitrary go through hard times. It was that he was being driven by something. When we look at um, the, the life of the, all of the apostles, they were the pattern of Christ's passion became the pattern of their passion. So then they were now driven by the passion of God's grace to share it, to revel in it, to draw others to awareness of it. And in their sharing of it, it brought hard times. But they weren't afraid of any of the hard times it would bring because they were driven by this passion. 
So Paul is saying we've got to share in Christ's passion, share in his pasheo. Now that might, that could bring all manner of difficult times, and our call as believers is because of the radicality of God's grace, because of what we understand about it. We're not afraid of these menial things that could occur because we're driven by this, this passion. So the pattern of Christ's life became the pattern of the apostles' life, and the, all the apostles called it to be the pattern of the church's life. It's to be the pattern of our life. And the good news of the gospel is Christ's passion, Christ's suffering ended in glory. The, apostle, the apostles' passion ended in glory. Where does our passion and suffering end? Glory. Not darkness and death in a box in the ground. Life and light and eternity with God. That changes things. And so Paul calls us to share in this, share in this passion. Christ suffered and was crucified because he claimed he was God. And he was passionate to save us from our sins. Paul was in prison, not because he was just going on arbitrarily hard times and he's in prison. Christ claimed to be God. He was passionate to save us from our sins. Paul claimed Christ was God, passionate to save our sins. And then Paul calls the church to say, let's all be passionate about our belief that Christ is God and his grace is there for our sins. Let's all be called into the same uniform passion, regardless of what sharing that passion may bring. And of course, we're not called to suffer because we're obnoxious or we're unthoughtful or we're ridiculous about our faith or we're insensitive in how we share our faith or we're... we're, or we're uh, or we're offensive in a way that, uh, I don't mean offensive in the sense that our message is contrary to culture. I mean we're offensive in the way that we're not genuinely loving people and being respectful and thoughtful. And when we sh- share about how we believe that Christ is Lord and the hope that we have that he is. And so uh, we're called into this same identifying and uh, believing in the goodness of the grace of Christ. That's what we're being called into. And so sharing in Christ's suffering means we're willing to self-identify as those who believe in the resurrection. We're willing to gather and worship Christ. We're willing to gather here. We're willing to have our identity and our ethics continually reformed and guided by the words of Christ and live lives of love and generosity and sacrifice shaped by the cross of Christ. That's the shape of the cross. Regardless of any of the kind of physical suffering that any of those things may cause us. Once I was preaching in Cuba, I was on my way to the church, and then they got a text, and they said, oh, we're not meeting here anymore, the police are there, we're meeting over here now, and they changed. That church in Cuba was used to suffering. They were, they were in hard times, but their passion, see, what they were driven by, the passion, was like to gather and to worship Jesus. And so even though that meant they had to keep moving their worship locations to different houses and all over the place, when people reported that they were gathering and meeting, they did it. I had a friend who in 2013 was preaching in a province in China and he was in his tiny little uh, house church in China and there was maybe, it was about the size of us here. So because, you know, by by population standards, this would be small, right? So this particular uh, place, it was like a room. They were meeting in this room of somebody's building or something and there was a bunch of people in there. And uh, he said to them, he said, "Uh, how many of you have ever been persecuted for, for your faith? And none of them put their hands up. And he said, that's so weird. I thought everybody in China was persecuted for the faith. So he asked it again because he thought the translator didn't understand him. How many of you guys have been persecuted for your faith? How many of you have suffered for your faith? Nobody put their hand up. A second time. He goes, he's like, <laughs> he goes, how many of you have been in jail for your faith? And they all put their hands up. Because in their mind, can you believe this? They're like, oh, we haven't been. Oh, jail. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm in jail. 
I mean, which real Christian hasn't? (laughs) Not the the 1400s. Five years ago. They all put their hands up. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we've totally been thrown in jail. Like, the the police come, they see us meeting, they they, they grab all of us, they throw us in wagons, we we all go to jail, we spend three, four, five nights in jail, we get threatened, you know, don't gather, don't gather, don't gather, and they gather. See, that, so, the passion of the Christ... The passion of the apostles, the passion for us, is being driven by the the magnitude of his grace. And uh, so Paul calls the church into that. So here in Kitchener-Waterloo, you're not going to get thrown in prison uh, for your faith. Um, But we we could all suffer various forms of personal or relational rejection for sharing our faith. Uh, You know, that's possible. That's because the cultural conversation um, today, pervasive in our culture, sounds a little bit like accept everything, applaud everything, celebrate everything, or else... And uh, so there can be times where we could find ourselves under fire for trying to thoughtfully and generously share um, why our hope is in Christ and the implications of our hoping in Christ. But Paul was suffering because the, the culture at the time said Nero was Lord, and Paul willing, willingly engaged in a dialogue to say, no, I had argued that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul's suffering was specific. Our suffering is, is, uh, is specific. And so we need wisdom and grace as those that revel in the magnitude of this salvation apart from all of our work, apart from this religious achievement, um, to borrow from Tim Keller, that our identity in Christ is not something that's achieved, it's something that's simply received by grace. And we need the Holy Spirit to guide, our, guide us so that we're very humble, very loving, and very confident in the opportunities where we share, share our, our faith. Because we live in a city where people of, most folks have decided here that there is no God. And because there is no God affirming them, accepting them, blessing them, they have the burden of affirming and blessing and accepting themselves. And so if you are living a life where you need to be affirm and bless and accept yourself, then you're uh, undoubtedly going to look outward for everybody else to affirm and accept and bless you because that's the way that your identity is soothed. And because we live in that, I, that kind of a culture, um, to share something that would be contradictory is an, as an affront to that identity. So because our identity is in Christ, we can be free um, Free to engage in the passion, the passion of Christ, the suffering of, of, of Christ. Um, this passion to make him known, the grace, the absolute grace that we rest in. And so uh, I'm going to close with this. When we get to verse 11, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about the resurrection. This is the great, of course, gospel promise that cures our hearts uh, from the pain that comes with the nearsightedness of hard times, of hardships, and of trials in the here and now. You know, Paul's body's locked up, but his soul is free. And so the good news for you, church, is not simply, hey, you know, I know life is hard, but hang on until heaven. That's not the gospel. There is a very real and, and powerful strength for you in your trials now, just as Paul is enjoying it as he's writing this letter from a damp Roman prison. He's locked up, but his soul is free. Some of you may be locked up, some various hard time or trial or stress or anxiety or, or sickness or something, but your soul can be free. And this is the, the promise of God's great grace. And so we are called to sh- share this passion of, the goodness of, of uh, the goodness of Christ. When I was writing this sermon, I was uh, just down the street here at the library. And I started to walk home. And it started to pour. Remember that day? What day was that? Friday? When it just came down. I got stuck in that. And I started walking home. From here to... I live on university in Waterloo. I started walking home. 
and it was pouring and pouring and pouring. And I was soaked. I looked like an angry, wet cat. And I'm walking down the street, and I get to this bus stop, and there's a guy there with, a, with an umbrella. And he takes one look at me as I'm walking in my soaked suffering. And he laughs, and he goes, oh, man, good luck with that. And I laughed back because it was hilarious how soaked I was. And I said, have a good one. He said, have a good one. And I kept on walking. About 10 minutes later, I got up Lancaster, and I come to another bus stop, and there's a young girl there with an umbrella. And she looks at this angry, wet cat. And she goes, oh my goodness, take my umbrella. And she holds it out, and she starts getting soaked in the torrential downpour. She goes, oh my goodness, take my umbrella. She goes, I have this. She's got this little windbreaker on or something. Oh my goodness, take this. May the radicality of God's grace do such a work in our heart that we're willing to bring the comfort of God's grace to someone else even if it means radical discomfort to ourselves, may he do it. May those of us that rest in the radicality of his grace be ministers of his grace and share in Christ's passion. Amen. Let's pray.